Well, our favourite immunology researcher uh, is on the line with us today uh, because uh, not to talk as we have for so often about uh, COVID, but about a a bit of breakthrough research that he's been involved in. So, Professor Stuart Burzins, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Nice to be here. This is about gamma delta T cells. Now, you better explain to us ignoramuses what the heck a gamma delta T cell is. <laughs> yes, it's a. It can get a bit. Uh, it can get a bit complicated. The immune system. Uh, so, I think most people have heard of white blood cells, which are the immune cells in your blood that uh, that do all the protection. They they protect us from well, not only from COVID, but from from all manner of infections, from funguses, from viruses, from you know, COVID. Um, But white blood cells are actually a a collective term for many, many different types of cells. They all sort of work together. Uh, So there's, um, it's like an army, really. There's different levels uh, of responsibility, uh, different functions, um, and gamma delta T cells are one of those types of cells. Um, They're they're regarded as an an ancient immune cell, Um, Humans are sort of fairly advanced, as you as you might imagine, and many of our immune cells are only found either in humans or in other mammals. But these gamma delta T cells have been around since the dawn of time, really, and they're found in even the most primitive, uh, you know, jaw jawless fish, you know, lampreys, things like that. They've got cells that look like gamma delta T cells, even though they don't have any of the other types of immune cells that we've got at the moment. So they've been around for a very very long time. Um, Weirdly, though, we probably don't know as much about those cells as we do about some of the other immune cells in our body. So um, we, amongst other groups, have been, you know, really trying to figure out what these cells are for and how they develop. And um, yeah, that's sort of the basis of our of our latest publication. So the the various sorts of T cells that are um, uh, uh, in this collective that we know as white blood cells, I think, they they're kind of geared to deal with particular sorts of uh, invasions in our bodies, uh, particular sorts of infections and and whatever? Yes. They're part of what's called the adaptive immune system. And by adaptive, it means that they're very clever, uh, cleverly designed in that whatever the immune system gets thrown at it, these cells are able to adapt to to attack it. So they're not sort of, you know, a one-trick pony that if you can figure out uh, how they work, this is talking as a pathogen or as a germ, if you figure out how they work, you can avoid them. With the adaptive immune system, those cells are actually able to figure out the best way of attacking the pathogen as it, as it sort of comes in. Uh, and to, to illustrate how important that is, HIV, for instance, is, is a disease that, uh, well, it hurts you because it removes some T cells from your body, a subset of T cells. That's all it really does. It kills off these T cells. And it's the lack of those cells in your body that allows all of these other diseases to, to um, you know, to take hold that, that usually you'd be able to defend against very, very well. And that's why people with HIV, uh, if untreated, uh, are susceptible to all manner of different cancers and infections. And it's that what, you know, what can lead on to AIDS rather than the virus itself that um, that kills them. And so gamma delta T cells are another type of, of cell. They're, they're very clever. They can, we know that they're important in fighting against cancer. We know that they're involved in some immune responses against different forms of viruses, um, but they seem to work in concert with other cells. So that is they're, um, they're almost like a partner of other cells so that if you pull out 
the gamma delta T cells, if they're not working properly, then the whole system can sort of um, start to not work as well as it otherwise might. And so that's why we think that they're quite important in the whole scheme of things, um, but we've had very little understanding about how they develop properly. And um, and in fact, we've had some ideas that um, that that our research has, has proven uh, has been incorrect now for the last 20 or 30 years. And so we're hoping that this is sort of a, the turning point in our understanding of how these cells work. Now, as I understand it, the, the one of those uh, false uh, beliefs um, previously was that the, these uh, gamma delta T cells um, are only present in early life, but you found that they are continually produced. Yes. Um, so there's been this uh, thought for the last, well, for many decades, basically, that when, once you were born, um, you you couldn't produce any more of these gamma delta T cells. So that is to say they're only produced um, prior to birth. And then once you're born, that's it. And, uh, you know, what, you, what you've got is what you've is what you've got. So if you haven't got enough or they or they aren't working properly, well, that's kind of bad luck for you. There's not much we can do about it. Um, we started to sort of see some clues uh, in the literature, you know, in, in work performed by other groups um, that suggested to us, well, you know, this, this may not be true. Um, and it, it suggested that, that some of these cells were developing later in life, and that is, you know, post-birth, basically. And what we've found is that... Um, there's an organ in your body called the thymus. Uh, and we've known for a long time that it's important for uh, for different types of immune cell development. Um, but we've now shown that gamma delta T cells also continue to develop in this thymus organ throughout your life. Um, and that's important for, for a number of different reasons. Um, first and foremost is it, it allows us to study the development of these cells. So we get to understand them a bit better. But in terms of immunotherapy, in terms of perhaps harnessing the power of these cells and uh, developing therapies to treat uh, people who have deficiencies or defects in these cells, it provides us with a target that we can now go, all right, we know these cells are getting produced throughout your life. We've got something to go in and work on or work with to try and make these cells work better uh, and to improve the immune system of people who might have defects in it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of one of the main things that we discovered, um, that they're produced throughout your life in this thymus organ rather than just developing prior to birth. Yeah, well, I have to confess, I not until we were we got your um, press release, ever heard of the thymus, but that, that I guess... Yes, that's it's a... It's a- it, it, look, it's, it's actually a really interesting organ, and it's one of the most recently... Uh, it, it's one of the organs that in re- it's only relatively recently that we've actually known what it does. Um, and a large part of its uh, of that discovery was by a, an Australian scientist called Professor Jacques Miller, who many people think should have won the, the Nobel Prize for this award. He's won many other very prestigious international awards, but he proved that it was this thymus organ, which is like a... Um, it's this white pasty mass um, that lies over the top of your heart. And it's a curious thing because it's actually largest when you're a child and smallest when you're an adult. Um, So when you're very small, and this is how we've been able to study it, um, if you have to do heart surgery, this organ is comparatively so large, it's lying over the top of the heart and the surgeons can't really work on the heart unless they cut it away. 
And by cutting it away, um, that means that that tissue would usually be discarded. Um, they, they don't want to get rid of it, but they have to in order to, to work on the heart. Um, and that allows us to study that organ where, where otherwise we'd obviously have no access to it at all. Um, and so it was only in probably the 60s, 1960, that, uh, that Jacques Miller did his work that discovered what this thymus organ did. And up until then, it was kind of thought to be an evolutionary relic in your body, kind of like the appendix or something like that, that it was there and you know, maybe it does something, but it obviously can't be very important. Uh, we now know that it's very, very important um, through through. Jacques Miller's work and, you know, a plethora of other people who followed afterwards and, and now a little tiny bit more of work um, from, from our group that we published just recently. Is it, uh, this is probably a bit speculative, but given that, that this is a cell which is common across the uh, the whole uh, of animal kingdom, I guess, um, and therefore is thought to be fairly primitive, um, is that uh, why it was originally thought that it just happened in uh, the fetal development uh, and sort of uh, kind of evolved out uh, as we grew up? Uh, a little bit of that. Um, the the other reason is that it's yeah. The other reason is that it's quite a rare cell. It's quite difficult to find. Um, so the the scientific reagents that have been essential to identify these cells have only been have only been identified relatively recently. So if you look down a microscope, um, you can't tell the difference between one type of one one type of blood cell or another. You need some quite specialized equipment. So there's been developments in that area um, that, that have helped us better pinpoint what these cells look like. And so we're able to tell one from another. And then once we can do that, we can start to count them and things. And the other thing that happened um, was that because they're relatively rare, when people looked in the blood, they could see lots of them. And when they looked in the thymus organ or any other organ, they could see very, very few of them. So few, in fact, that they thought that, um, you know, it, it was um, clearly not being made in that organ. They were wrong about that, but that's what they thought because they were so few. Um, and so with recent, um, you know, advances in, in medical research, We've now been able to show, you know, more definitively that we can find them. And then once we can find them, we can kind of look for very subtle differences between them using both, uh, you know, looking uh, at the genetics of the cell uh, and also the proteins that they express and, and how they respond to, you know, in different settings. And we're, we're able to find them at different levels of maturity. And slowly over the, you know, years of research, uh, you can build a picture of how the cells progress in time. So that is, we can identify the most immature ones and then we can see how they develop uh, so that they come out the other end being mature. So it's it's a very long, drawn-out process. Uh, it's taken us many, many years to do it. Um, but that that's kind of the end game, that we're able to identify them better than other people have been able to do previously and we've been able to show them at different stages of development so that we understand how they mature in the body uh, and once you can do that then you can start to look in in people who have got problems in those cells look at how their cells are developing and start to understand what's gone wrong and once you've done that you can start to investigate how to make it go right again and so it was only in probably the 60s, 1960, that uh, that Jacques Miller did his work that discovered what this thymus organ did. And up until then, it was kind of thought to be an evolutionary relic in your body, kind of like the appendix or something like that, that it was there and you know, maybe it does something, but it 
obviously can't be very important. Uh, we now know that it's very, very important um, through through Jacques Miller's work and you know a plethora of other people who followed afterwards and, and now a little tiny bit more of work um, from, from our group that we published just recently. It's a very long drawn out process. Uh, it's taken us many, many years to do it. Um, but that, that's kind of the end game that we're able to identify them better than other people have been able to do previously. And we've been able to show them at different stages of development so that we understand how they mature in the body. Uh, and once you can do that, then you can start to look in, in people who have got problems in those cells, look at how their cells are developing and start to understand what's gone wrong. And once you've done that, you can start to investigate how to make it go right again. Uh, and I guess uh, investigate things like, uh, as you said, mentioned earlier, the interaction between these cells and, and other cells sort of that, that uh, are additive, that, that make the whole system work better. That's exactly right. Um, so science is very much the thin, end, thin edge of the wedge. And so once you've got that tiny little bit of knowledge that allows you to sort of ask more questions, you can dig deeper and deeper and, and suddenly your knowledge expands relatively quickly. So exactly what you're saying there, we've now got the ability to look at those, look at how these cells are behaving when, we're, when they're challenged with things like viruses and challenged with things like, uh, like cancer and we can understand well, what makes their response more effective, what's making them less effective. And, then, and, you know, from that, immunotherapy sort of develop. We know what needs to happen in order to for them to work optimally. So we then have the opportunity, I guess, to develop ways to, to push them in that direction. And so that's what we're sort of hoping this type of research will lead to now. Well done on all of that. Um, but just before we leave... Um... Uh, people probably are not aware of the the process that goes through when when these discoveries are are, are made, and I believe uh, you've uh, had this work accepted for the publication uh, in a journal, um, and uh, will no doubt share yes. it in conferences and the like. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so science, um, you know, despite what people what what some people might sometimes think about scientists, um, it is very, very important that we kind of make sure that what we're saying is, is correct. And so there needs to be a lot of checks and balances. So when we sort of develop this story, what we do is we go to a scientific journal, uh, in this case, a journal called Science Immunology, which is one of the um, one of the large immunology journals in, in the world. And we talk to them about this story and we go, look, we think that this is really exciting. Here's our, here's our evidence they consider it at an editorial level. So the first thing they'll look at is, well, is this interesting? Is it not? Does it sound convincing? Does it not? So they're kind of a gatekeeper, I guess. If they say, yes, it sounds interesting, then what they'll do is send the work out to anonymous peer reviewers. So they'll know experts in this field. They'll send it out to them and they will look at the, look at the evidence and they'll come back to the journal who will come back to us and they'll, they'll have critiqued the work. And... We go back and forth. Uh, in this particular case, the the other scientist said, look, it looks really interesting, but you need to do a bit more in this area. You need to do a bit more in this area. Uh, we're not convinced, you know, in, in this sort of area. So that's part of the reason it takes a long time. We had to go back and do about a year's more work. Um, and then we satisfied their, their answers. Then those reviewers were then happy, went back to the journal. They were then happy. And from that point, they say, okay, we're now satisfied to the point that we can publish this work as being uh, correct, I guess, in, in a scientific sense. 
So there's they're kind of the checks and balances. You know, it, it'd be nice to be able to just go, well, we're, we're happy that it's right. Um, please publish it. But um, it's far better that there's, you know, experts in the field who get a chance to critique this before it actually goes into the literature as fact rather than theory. And once the, the it's been published, it then becomes available to other other researchers who who then develop yes. a whole whatever else comes out of it. That's right. And so uh, that, you know, science really is building upon each other's achievements. And so what, what happens right now, like literally is happening now, is that uh, I and my colleagues are presenting this work at various international conferences what, and national conferences as well. Um, and um, other scientists who are interested in this sort of area who read our work um, are free to sort of get in contact with us um, and, you know, talk about how they might develop the work. Uh, they've got access to our raw data, you know, in case they want to look at some things that we, uh, you know, look at some things in a different way. Um, so it, it is, everybody wants to be first. Um, that's, there's no, you know, there's no doubt there's some competitiveness in this, but by the same token, science works best when you are helping each other along. There, there's really no point five different research groups all working on exactly the same things in little silos. It's really a waste of research money in that in that sense. So, uh, us having made this discovery, it's um, it's an advantage for everyone, us included. If if other groups then have access to to our thoughts on the matter and our data, so that the whole field uh, can move forward. Finally, finally, we should just give a nod to to your PhD student who who was part of doing all of this work. They're, they're no doubt doing a lot of the the uh, what you might term laboratory grunt work and get to get into this. Yes. Very, very long hours, yes. Uh, so there were a number of researchers involved in this. Uh, so it, it was a collaborative study between my group based at Federation University and the group of Daniel Polici, who's a researcher at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. Um, and as you say, the grunt work, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the long hours spent in the lab and a, a lot of work analysing the data and things was done by my PhD student, Lewis Perryman, who's also based at Fed Uni. So Lewis put in some very long hours indeed to get this done. Um, but, you know, it's a big feather in his cap and it'll go a long way towards uh, him getting approved to get his PhD, hopefully, pretty soon. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a nice outcome, but a lot of work to get there. All right. Well, uh, really interesting. Um, and I'm sure we've, we've already learned a lot about our bodies that we had no idea about. As always, it's interesting to... <laughs> to get this information from you and you're very um, generous with your time in sharing it with us. And I appreciate that. Nice to talk to you, Paul. Thank you.